Well, <clears throat> thank you for your patience. It is a joy and delight uh, to hear you all sing as this room fills up with a, a few more people. And uh, even with whatever muffledness was behind those various masks, it came across to me as a glorious praise uh, to our God. And it was music, if I can say that, to my ears. So may God uh, receive our praise that we have brought to him in the singing of these hymns. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and I just want to read a brief passage uh, to begin our time together. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll just read verses 1 through 5, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous among some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful through the destruction of fortresses destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let's once again seek the face of God as we come to his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead with you that you would grant unto me something of the meekness and gentleness of Christ even as I preach your word this morning. Pray also that you would grant unto me something of the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ, a zeal for your glory. So grant us your spirit that I would have his help to govern my spirit as the spirit of the prophet, and so certainly the spirit of the preacher should be under self-control, but also that your spirit would come and help each one of us to learn from your holy word. Guide and direct, please, Father, guide and direct by your spirit for the glory of King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I began last week addressing this matter of racism, I called it a Christian understanding of and pastoral response to racism, and I won't have time uh, to go back over uh, any kind of significant review. But just let me say that my focus, again, is a Christian understanding. I'm not going through a bunch of statistics. I'm not going to spend time looking at a lot of sociological studies. Uh, I'm not going to give you the, the fruit of various uh, lectures and books and whatnot that I have, I've read or portions of things that I've read. My goal is to, to bring us to the touchstone of Scripture and say, what does the Scripture have to say to us How does it guide us with regard to this matter of racism? And as I said, a pastoral response. I'm I'm seeking to govern my own thinking and consciously think about 
you who are sitting here in front of me, you who are sitting in the other rooms on this uh, uh, locale, at this locale. My goal is to be a shepherd, a pastor to you, the people of God here, not to give something that's going to answer all the questions for all the people around the world who are wrestling with these things. We looked at a definition, some, uh, some definitions, and one particular definition that's important is the definition of race. Race is uh, something which is very difficult to define, associated with large geographical separated populations or linguistic groups or religious groups or political or national or ethnic groups. I prefer the word uh, ethnic, ethnicity. Or as one man put it, to deal with the sin of racism, he's going to talk, he talked about ethnocentrism, that is elevating one particular race. But with regard to race, it's really this issue of looking at people and seeing something uh, of their characteristics, of the way that they look, the way that they act, that says, okay, I put them in this category, this kind of people. Where racism is the the problematic version of that is that it is the belief that some races are innately superior to others. And so the definition is that I'm using is this. Racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race or ethnicity over other races or ethnicities. That can be an individual reality, a person having those kinds of uh, perspectives or actions or words toward another individual, or it can be something that's broader than that, uh, systemic, structural, institutional, those are the terms that are being used today. Now, we looked at some biblical categories for the sin of racism, and I said that racism is an expression of prejudice. It's an expression of something the Bible calls partiality. It is a sin. And we looked at James chapter 2 in particular and showed how the scriptures make it very clear that it is a sin to be a racist. Now, I come to point number four in my overall outline as we come this morning, and that is a biblical response considered. A biblical response considered to the sin of racism. Uh, How then should we respond? And I have two basic categories of application, basically, is what I'm going to look at this morning. Two basic principles. First of all, a general principle, and then secondly, a governing principle. A general principle and a governing principle. Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Here we find the general principle that I want us to consider, first of all, under this biblical response considered. John chapter 7. I'll begin reading at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Who do you seek to why excuse me, why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and he's referring to something in John chapter five, which we'll look at, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision. 
not because it was not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is not Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. And then he goes on the various uh, ways that they responded. But here's the principle. The general principle is found right here in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, as we look at this, the first thing I want you to note is, is this verse is obviously talking about judging. The same word is used three times. Uh, it means to evaluate, to assess, to condemn someone or something. The first uh, use of it, do not judge, is a present prohibition. Stop doing something. Stop judging And the second is a present command, continue doing something or do something, that is, judge. This is a very relevant verse for us to look at because probably the number one verse quoted from the scriptures today is from Matthew. And it's not even a whole verse. It's not even a whole thought. It's just one little phrase, one sentence. Do not judge. And so with that verse... With that thought in front of us, this is a very relevant verse because this verse does actually say, stop judging, but continue judging. Continue making those evaluations, assessing, condemning. We all do it. When you were driving to to church this morning, if you drove to church and came to a red light, you made an assessment. That light is red, and that light means, therefore, I better stop. And it didn't matter what the GPS said. If it said, go straight... You said, no, I'll wait, because I make a judgment. When you saw brethren in the parking lot, you made judgments about them. Maybe they, were, maybe they were looking ill, or they were looking well, and you said, oh, okay, I made some judgments. We constantly do this as part of life. That's what this verse is addressing, this faculty of making judgments, assessing, evaluating. Let's look at these two halves then. The first half, stop judging. Here's the general principle again. Stop judging according to appearance. That's the word appearance is a very simple word. It's used in the Old Testament, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to talk about the surface of the land. And so when the locusts were going to cover the surface of the land, it was just going to cover right across the top. You could not see anything. It was just on the surface. They weren't burrowing down. They weren't digging in. They were just covering the surface. That's what the picture is. John uses this phrase twice in his writings to talk about the face of someone. It says that Lazarus's face, the surface, it was covered with, a, with cloth when he came out of the grave. And when John sees the vision of Jesus there in Revelation chapter 1. He sees his face glowing right there on the surface. It's what is obvious to the eyes. It's right there in front of you. Now there's a classic example of the use of this term. And I wouldn't be surprised if most of you know it. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16 in verse 7. You'll recall that Samuel was called to find a king to replace Saul. And he was supposed to then go to the house of Jesse 
and he was supposed to anoint a king. Well, Jesse had several sons. Now, remember, Saul was known for being very tall and very handsome and and a very uh, vigorous man. You looked at him and said, now there's a leader, a born leader. Just had that look about him. So Samuel comes to Jesse's home and he sees Eliab. And uh, he says, this must be the man. Look at God's response in verse 7. But Jehovah said to Samuel, do not look at his, here's our word, appearance, or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance. Man just sees what's on the surface, but the Lord looks at the heart. So this is what the the Lord Jesus is addressing when he says, do not judge Based on appearance or according to what's just on the surface, what is obvious to the eye, what comes immediately before you. This is our native tendency. Man sees a young woman, a single man sees a young woman, and the first thing he he doesn't see, the first thing is her faith. What he sees is her face. And And he's either attracted or not. And it's immediate, there's this response. This is what he says. This is what he says that they were not to do, to stop doing, because of our tendency. This is an easy way to live. I'm just going to make all my decisions based on immediately what I see and not go any further. Jesus says, stop it. Stop judging by appearances, by mere appearances. He says, then go on judging. The next thing he adds Now, he's obviously talking about something more than just looking at people and making judgments. You understand what I'm saying. I'm using those as illustrations, but I'm not saying that's what he's saying, don't do. We'll get to exactly what this means in just a moment. But here's, don't see, he's looking at things on the the surface. Then he says, go on judging a righteous judgment. Now, what is meant by righteous? Well, it can mean fair, it can mean compassionate, it can mean uh, uh, candid, it basically means judge according to the right standard. And in the word of God, righteousness is, is, is rooted in the character of God and it's given to us in the commandments of God. So a right judgment is to, com- is to judge according to God's assessment. A righteous judgment is to judge according to God's standard. Ultimately, that's what he's talking about here, is he's talking about having that kind of a standard which is in keeping with the truth of God, in keeping with the Word of God. But specifically, what Jesus is saying is that is what is the opposite of doing something that is shallow or surface. Now, remember what we read as to the people's response to Jesus. The people had basically embraced the Pharisees' hypocritical judgment of Jesus' work. Remember the Pharisees, they were the ones that had all these laws, and they made lots of laws for people to follow, and they did that with the, with the Sabbath, with the Lord's Day. And so they had these laws as to how the Lord's Day was to be kept. But then they would make exceptions to their own rules. And when circumcision was to be done on the eighth day, and the eighth day happened to be 
the Sabbath day, they made an exception. He could take out his tools, he could go to work, the rabbi could perform a circumcision, and in some sense, rightly so. But for the Pharisees, this was, this was hypocritical. Their respect for their religious symbol as Jews that marked them out as Jews gave them the, the right to make exceptions to their rules about the Sabbath. But now what's being compared to that? It's Jesus' work. What was Jesus' work? Well, Jesus' work was making a man whole on the Sabbath. Look back at John chapter 5. This is the event that's being talked about when Jesus says, for this reason, when he, when he talks about making a man whole or healing a man completely, the entire man, verse 23. In, verse, in chapter 5, we read about this incident. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And I'll skip over the part that's, that's in the middle there, go down to verse 5. And a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So here's the event. Here was a man who was very likely one who, who had, could not get to the temple to worship God. If he couldn't get down into the pool, he may have also been one who was, who was ceremonially unclean and unallowed to go into the temple because of his particular condition. For the conditions described here of the people that were there, sick, blind, lame, and withered, are descriptions that would disqualify a priest from working in the temple. They would disqualify a sacrifice from being offered in the temple. It may very well be that these people were ceremonially unclean. And Jesus comes along, and, and he tells us in chapter 7, verse 23, that he made the man whole. He made an entire man well. He healed everything about him. Now, some say that that actually means he was actually, sa he was actually saved and spiritually healed him. That may be the case. We don't know for sure. But here's the point. They allow for circumcision, which is harming, is a marring of a body. I mean, certainly it's the mark for the, for the, uh, the people of Israel, special mark. But the fact is it was, it was doing a, a, a harm to the body, a hurt to the body. And here Jesus comes along and makes a whole man well on the Sabbath day. And they've got a problem with that. Can you see the hypocrisy in that? Well, the people had embraced this hypocritical view of the Sabbath. They'd, they'd embraced this hypocritical view that Jesus had done something wrong. And so they're really confused. They're saying, wait a minute, this can't be. This is their shallow judgment. They were following the Pharisees in rejecting Jesus' claims for deity by doing this. For we read in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, that Jesus did this saying, My father, 
or explained this by saying, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And Jesus knew that, so did Jesus back up? He said, Oh, no, you got it wrong. No, it says in in verse 19, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can end. The Son can, excuse me, find me a place. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. And in verse 36, He makes it very plain. The witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And Jesus picks up on this in chapter 7 and says this is what they missed. This was their their shallow judgment had missed this. Chapter 7 verses 28 to 29. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus gives us this general principle. Stop making shallow judgments. Stop making your judgment based on the prevalent ideas about the way people viewed Jesus. The hypocritical ways that he was judged by the Pharisees. And he says, don't take on that assessment. Don't take the Pharisees' assessment of who Jesus was and what Jesus' work work is. Don't just sit there and hear them say this and take on that judgment. Judge a righteous judgment. He's telling them, listen to my words. And look at my acts which validate my claims. And believe them. And make a judgment based on the rightness of them. Don't judge based on merely surface things, what your eyes see. Don't uncritically embrace the view of the day. Believe Jesus' words, validated by his miracles, and beware of the prejudice against Christ and his works. That's what he was saying in his day. Basically, he was telling the the people, think for yourselves. Don't follow the Pharisees. Don't make this shallow judgment that's in the air around you and just by what you saw and say, oh, that's who Jesus is. He's just the boy from Nazareth. But think deeply about what I have said and what I have done. One commentator summarized this point this way. He said, Jesus' opponents have been judging by mere appearances. They should stop judging by superficial criteria, that is, all the laws and such that the Pharisees have made, but stop by by superficial criteria and make a right judgment. 
They have misconstrued his character by a fundamentally flawed set of deductions from Old Testament law, an approach that turns out to be superficial, far too committed to mere appearances. If their approach to God's will were one of faith, they would soon discern that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker, but the one who fulfills both Sabbath and circumcision. Calvin said this, Circumcision was properly held by them in reverence. In other words, they they looked up to this. It It was appropriate for them to think highly of circumcision. When it was performed on the Sabbath day, they knew that the law was not not violated by it, because the works of God agree well with each other. Why do they not arrive at the same conclusion as to the work of Christ? But because their minds are preoccupied by a prejudice which they have formed against his person, judgment, therefore, will never be right unless it is regulated by the truth of the fact. I hope you can see where I'm going and how to apply this particular principle. Prejudice kept them from seeing what was true. Now turn with me to another passage, which is an additional example of this. We're still under this general principle. Judge, stop judging by appearance, but judge righteous judgment. We've seen that these are what what Jesus is saying. We've looked at what he said. Now let's look at another example of this. It's found there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I stopped reading at verse 5. But notice verse 7. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself. And just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Paul is addressing these Corinthians, and in addressing the Corinthians, he makes this summary statement in his second letter here. You are looking at things according to outward appearances. You're looking at the face of things, literally. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his ministry. They were evaluating, the Corinthians were evaluating his ministry based on outward circumstances. He hadn't come when they had expected him to come. His letters were one way, and his speech in person was another way. They were holding up the local teachers, the false teachers, as they're known to be or described later, as the standard. And against that standard, we read in 2 Corinthians 10.10 that they viewed Paul as being, in his personal presence, unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. He didn't speak with the eloquence that these other teachers had in verse, chapter 11, verse 6. Even if I am unskilled in speech... So he's saying, you're looking at me and you're judging me based on these superficial outward appearances. I don't look like them. I don't talk like them. I'm not as impressive as them. I'm not as eloquent as them. And Paul is seeking to correct their false thinking in his letter. Now, he does a lot of trying to correct their false thinking because they're doing a lot of this in their lives. 
They're looking at their lives, and they're not evaluating it according to God's standard, but looking at it on the surface. And so he has to explain, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. He corrects their views of men. We say we no longer look at men one way, we look at them another way when they're saved. They're new creatures. He sought to correct their view of him and and his ministry by describing his integrity, by describing the fact that he preached in the fear of God, that he was when he was beside himself, it, it was for God. How he loved them and how he sacrificed for them. The problem is this, that the Corinthians were listening to the world and judging the apostle and his ministry by what they were seeing in the world. They were following the world's standards. And so Paul gives his solution, the verses we read in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. What's the solution to this wrong thinking or thinking in, in terms of outward appearance? He said, well, we need to raise up the knowledge of God and think of things in light of the knowledge of God. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. I don't use those fleshly tools, those fleshly instruments. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. He says they've, they've left out the knowledge of God, and I want to bring the knowledge of God before your eyes, to think accurately and not to think in a shallow way or in ways according to appearances. And then he says, I'm taking every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Is Christ your master? Then every thought that you have should be brought under his rule and under his word. They were following the world standards and Paul wanted to uh, elevate God's standards and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Basically, stop judging my apostolic ministry and my apostleship based on the present worldly standards, but judge the things in the world by the truth of God and by the message of Christ, is what Paul is saying. In essence, he's saying, and he's going to end his letter by saying this twice, grow up. Stop being like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Grow up, as he says in Ephesians 4, in Christ. So we have these two passages, these two that highlight this general principle. The general principle, stop judging according to appearances, judge righteous judgment. Don't be looking at the outward appearance merely, but look for the truth of God and bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Those are the points I'm trying to make from those two passages. I want you to understand that so it doesn't look like I just grabbed a couple of phrases that sound good and seem to apply to things but have nothing to do with it. I believe they do have everything to do with what we're talking about as we come to talk about racism. Because racism is all about how somebody appears. That's what race is all about in most definitions. It's how somebody appears. What their skin color is, what their hair is like, where they're from, what na- or where they think they're from, or identify as being from. But here's what I want, want us to see. This principle is so important that we judge righteous judgment. 
And the first of all is I want you to see the danger. Do you see the danger of judging shallowly? Judging according to appearances. You see, for these people, it may have meant that they actually would misunderstand who Jesus was or that they would distance themselves and miss out on the apostles' teaching because they were judging based on shallow things. It can do great harm to yourself and to others to judge this way. But in fact, what does it mean? How does this apply to our matter of racism as we come to this matter? We must stop judging people and situations based on a surface view. We must stop judging people based on merely appearance and what presents itself to our view. How trivial, how demeaning to judge an individual based on the clothes that they wear, the car that they drive, the language they speak, or the color of their skin, the texture of their hair, the shape of their eyes. Now, one of the dangers here is that we actually think we know more than we really know. And when it comes to all these situations going on in our world, we think we know everything. Because all I have to do is say, Google, tell me about this. And the next thing I know... (laughs) No. (laughs) And all of a sudden it tells me everything we want to know. And we think we know it all. And we have this impression that somehow we're omniscient. Because we've got social media, we've got the the Google, it's going (laughs) to... that's going to tell us everything that we think is out there to know. And the fact of the matter is, did you, did you count the last time how many pages came up that you did that search? And did you look at them all? No, you went to the ones that you were most favorable toward or that you felt had the most reliable information. We don't know it all. Brethren, it is wrong for us to judge on a surface level, even when we think we know everything there is to know. And we are being bombarded by all kinds of voices that tell us they know what we ought to know. And it is just as shallow to just take their voices and parrot them and say, I'm going to judge based on what all these these few voices that I've listened to, and that's going to be my final judgment. That too can be just as shallow. We are to judge a righteous judgment. We need to think then about men according to God's word. We need to raise up the knowledge of God and bring every thought captive about the people we meet and the way we view them and the way we understand them to the obedience of Christ. We must beware of hasty judgments based on superficial knowledge. Ask yourself, If I'm bringing something to the obedience of Christ, some thought, ask yourself, how did Christ treat people? It's not so much 
WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's what did he do? That's really what we need to know because we have that and that's fact. And I don't have to guess at that. I can know what he did. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But how did God view people? I'll go back over some of the material I recently preached on and so I can go over this fairly quickly. You can go back and get more full information and you listen to those two sermons on what is man. But the first thing, we must judge righteous judgment. We must judge situations according to God's truth. That is, we must treat others as image bearers of God. We must treat every human being we meet with dignity. The dignity that they deserve as image bearers created by God. I can't say it really much better than to summarize what Dr. Al Mohler said and what others have said when it comes to the fact, do black lives matter? There is no one simple answer. First of all, if what you mean by that is Do I subscribe to everything that Black Lives Matter Global Network says? I say no, and a Christian should always say no. Because of the ungodly perspectives, the unbiblical perspectives regarding transgender, homosexuality, women's uh, place, the, the destruction of the nuclear family, among many other things, that cannot be what we say we're meaning when we say, do Black Lives Matter? But do black lives matter? That is, in the words of of Dr. Al Mohler, that is a profound statement. A profoundly true statement. Because yes, black lives matter. Why? Because they are humans. They are human lives. Human beings who should be embraced with dignity. But there's one more area that needs to be addressed. And that was something that another man said back in 2016, in a sermon that he preached after a different event in that time period, when he said, what we mean by black lives matter is black lives matter too. And that's legitimate to say that. And he made the illustration. He said, if I said babies' lives matter when I'm talking about the issue of abortion... I'm not saying that only babies' lives matter. I'm saying they matter too, because that's particularly where they're being threatened. And where people's lives are being threatened, their lives matter. When the life of a black man or a black woman a black boy or a black girl is taken by anyone. When there is a murder, we should all grieve. There should be an agony in our soul that the image of God has been attacked. We must not minimize the death of any individual. But don't be offended if people don't fit quite into your history and your background and what you're facing when they're trying to wrestle with this matter of black lives matter too. Because remember, 
What is race? It's a construct. And trying to define who's black is not necessarily all that easy to do sometimes. What do you mean by that? So we wrestle. Brethren, we wrestle. This is what we, but we need to come to the Word of God and say, regardless of whatever I might know about race or believe about race or about how people ought to be divided up into groups and where they come from, the fact of the matter is they're made in the image of God and so therefore should be treated with dignity. But secondly, when we're talking about judging righteous judgment and thinking about people in the way that God thinks about people, we must also relate to others with compassion and wisdom because we are all fallen. We think of the human being standing in front of us. These two words should almost always come to my mind. Dignity and depravity. Dignity and depravity. They're fallen. And if there is anything that is systemic and structural... It's sin. One expression of which is racism, partiality, prejudice. And it's a sin which is systemic. And I'm not saying that everybody has the same prejudice and and everybody is, is prejudiced by nature. We're all sinners by nature. And for some of us, that manifests itself in, in racism. For others of us, that manifests itself in materialism. For others of us, that manifests itself in a selfishness. It can manifest itself in all different ways. Because we are all sinners. Fallen from God's glory. Every human being. That is systemic. And if you want to talk about structural, I'll tell you Structural. Structural sin is that every part of me, apart from Christ, is affected by sin. This whole structure is affected. There is nothing that isn't. And you want to talk about institutionalized sin. Well, yeah, of course it is. Because anything that somebody like that and a group of somebody's like that, that are structurally affected by sin and systemically affected by sin, any institution we create is going to be also affected by and prone to sin. Yeah, so there's some systemic structural realities and institutional realities. And, you know, one of the primary effects of sin, there is a sense in which maybe racism or at least partiality or prejudice is kind of in the heart of every sin because no sooner had sin happened than what did it do? It made a distance between us and God. And my friends today, if you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing all this stuff about racism, and you're wrestling with that or thinking about that, you know, the bottom line is if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a worse separation than being separated from the person next to you. Because you have a God who is angry with you. You're a God that your sins have separated you from and put you under the wrath of that God. And that is your great need this morning. Not learning to love your brother. Not learning to love the people that are around you. Not learning to look at people this way. Your greatest problem is to learn to look at yourself in the eyes of God and how God views you. And God views you as one created for his glory and you are fallen from that and under his wrath. So flee to Christ. But the fact of the matter is that no sooner had there been this separation between God and there was separation between humans, right? Adam and Eve were now separated. And then Cain and Abel were separated. 
In Genesis chapter 11, the whole human race became separated by virtue of the fact that they were rebelling against God and God said, I'm going to mix up their languages and sent them out to the ends of the earth. So yes, see the people that are around us as sinners. Yes, sin happens. Yes, police officers can be sinners and act in sinful ways too. Yes, criminals act in sinful ways too. Yes, white people act in sinful ways. Black people act in sinful ways. And everything in between acts in sinful ways. You don't get much whiter than some of this. And I understand that as I stand up here preaching this. I'm not preaching as a white man. I'm trying to preach as, what, as, a, as a Christian man. But we might understand that it doesn't matter the color. Sin is our problem. And so when you're dealing with somebody on these particular issues, recognize they're wrestling with the same kinds of sins that you're wrestling with. And so I just come with two more principles and then I have to end. I'm, I'm run, run, I've run out of time. But I have to say, J.C. Ryle really captures this point extremely well. After all that I've said about how we judge others and being righteous in the way we view them, viewing them from God's vantage point, viewing them as those, as those who are, ourselves, who are Christians under the mastery of Christ, after all of that, J.C. Ryle says this, Judge yourself more harshly and others more graciously. In any case, this is a quote now from Ryle, in any case, let us take care that we pass fair judgment on ourselves. Whatever we think of others, lest let us beware of making mistakes about our own character. There, at any rate, let us be honest and fair. Let us not flatter ourselves that all is right, because all is apparently right before men. The Lord, we must remember, looks on the heart, for Samuel 16, 7. Then let us judge ourselves with righteous judgment and condemn ourselves while we live, lest we be judged of the Lord and condemned forever at the last day. And then finally, I would add this, and I won't get to my second point, loving our neighbor as ourselves. I'll have to leave that for another time. But I, I come to this final point of thinking about people and thinking about life the way God calls us to. And that is we must embrace the sovereignty of God in making you who you are and putting you in the situation of life where you are. We need to beware, brethren, of being practical atheists at this particular point. When we embrace something, if we if we embrace something of the world's perspective, I didn't choose that a Swedish man would leave Sweden, very likely under persecution from the Lutheran Church, and come to the United States as a Baptist and go all the way across the country out to a place called Colorado, and there to homestead, and there to find a wife, and there to have a child, and there he had was blessed with four children. I didn't ask for that. I didn't control that. God did that. Or I would have been born in Sweden and talking, yeah, sure. But I wasn't. Because God in His kindness and God in His providence brought that man across to Colorado where I would then be born. 
He gave me the skin color I have. He gave me the opportunities that I have. He gave me the disadvantages that I had. He ordered it all. Paul says, who makes us to differ? What do we have that we have not received? It all comes to us from the hand of God. And so when you have what God has given you, use what God has given you for good. Be ready for every good deed. Be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. These are all words from the book of Titus, chapter 3. Use what God has given you for good, for the good of others. And then be content in your lot. I hope we haven't forgotten the things that Pastor Hoffmeyer preached to us from Philippians chapter 4. But just in case you might have, let me just give you the verses again. Philippians 4 verses 12 and 13. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm sure Paul would have said, I would rather not have gone to prison. But we wouldn't have those epistles if he hadn't. We wouldn't have had much of what we have in our Bibles had God not worked in this man in some very difficult ways. I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you sent me. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Brethren, God help us to live in light of the fact that God is sovereign in where he places us and the people to whom he, put, he puts in our paths that we were to relate to. But may God help us to think righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious uh, to help us to judge righteously and not to judge according to appearances, especially when it comes to dealing with the people around us. Help us, Father, to be just in all our assessments and evaluations of others. And we plead for this because we want to honor you in all those relationships. And we want to be used by you for the glory of your name and for the good of mankind. And so help us, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.